Uh, thank you, Dr. White. I should add as well that um, after the exorcism, there'll be an altar call so that uh, anyone who wants to join the Duke uh, train is welcome to join us. I've now alienated almost my entire audience. Clearly, I'm not a very seasoned <laughs> preacher, so we're, uh, we're just going to go with this. Actually, play, pray with me, if you will. <clears throat> Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I was 24, and I was at a party with friends from church, and we were playing Mario Kart on the Nintendo 64. So don't, don't do the math there, it's been a while. Um, and there was this new girl there who was part of our group, and she was beating us mercilessly at this game, just wiping the floor with us over and over again, which would not have been such a big deal, except that she kept reminding us how badly she was slaughtering us constantly. And it got to the point where, even though I'm a fan of uh, playful trash talk, and if you know me at all, you know that I engage in that as well, there's a, there's a fuzzy line between, between joking with somebody and being a jerk. And she blew right past that line. And we were all really irritated at her. And it got to the point that I didn't even want to win anymore. I just wanted to see her lose. And so unbeknownst to her, another friend of mine was there. And at this party, there were a lot of different stations. People were playing Nintendo or watching movies, or there's a board game station. And so away in another corner was another friend of mine, also named Brian. And I went to go give the controller to him and ask him to play. But not because I was being thoughtful or considerate of others. I knew that Brian's spiritual gift was Mario Kart. <laughs> he just had a preternatural ability to play this game. So I invited him to come. He sat down. He began to play. The first round, once again, this girl, will call her Susan, she, she begins uh, telling him how badly she's going to beat him, but something happens. He begins to beat her. He goes ahead of her, and he, he beats her handily. That wasn't even close. And then she says, well, it's just luck. Let's do it again. So they go again, and he beats her again. And she finally says, well, you're just choosing all the maps. Clearly, if I chose, we'll win. He says, okay, that's, that's fine. And by the way, he has no idea about the, tense, the tension or the humiliation we were all feeling before when she was beating us. He's just having fun. So she chooses the map, and he beats her again. And finally, she sets her controller down, and she says, you know, I'm really good at this game. I spent hours practicing this when I was younger. And my friend Brian says, I guess I spent a, long, a lot of time practicing this. I don't know. I've just always been really good. And at that, she walks off and doesn't say a single word. And I was filled with unrighteous schadenfreude because seeing her lose was sweeter than any victory that I could have won. <clears throat> Today, I wanna talk about what it means to win. What does lo winning look like for Christians? And spoiler alert, it does not look like being passive aggressive like I was. That's, that's not the moral to draw from that story. I hear Christians use a lot of language about winning in their self-talk all the time. We are on the winning side, I hear people say. We all win in the end. Even if I lose in Christ, I've won. We are winners in God's eyes. But what does it mean to win? That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about Revelation 5. I want to look at three different ways of understanding that passage that I think are unhelpful 
And then I want to look at what I think that John, the seer, is trying to tell us in this passage. So first, let's take a look at the passage that Shelby read for us earlier in Revelation 5. It introduces us to a problem. There is a scroll in the right hand of God that no one can open. And John weeps because it seems like it will stay closed forever. But then in verse 5, it says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This word conquered is from the Greek word nikao, and its noun is where we get the word Nike from. It means to overcome. It means to conquer. It means to win. Other Greek writers use this same word to talk about prevailing in a court trial or being the best in an athletic contest. It means winning in the broadest possible sense. It is also the first word in this sentence before the subject, which means that it is the focus of what John wants to say. So what does John tell us that conquering is? Well, the one doing the conquering is a lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And all of this is, of course, messianic imagery. A lion is a regal image and symbol. It's powerful, it's strong, it's noble. And Judah was the tribe of kings. It's the tribe that David comes from. And just in case you didn't get it, he says at the end, the root of David. And this is kind of like when you tell a joke to someone and they don't get it, and then you have to explain the punchline and it's no longer funny. That's what John is doing. In case you've missed it all, this is messianic imagery. And it offers a very clear way of interpreting the language of conquering. It means domination. It means the humiliation of your enemies. And it means beating people so badly at Mario Kart and bragging about it that you force them to make poor life choices. All of this is what John hears with his ear. But then John tells us what he sees with his eyes. And what he sees is a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered. Now, a lamb is not exactly a symbol of dominance and power, and I don't know of any sports teams whose mascot is the sheep. But this lamb, in addition to that, has been slaughtered. And the sense of this, of this verb in Greek is very similar to our English expression. It doesn't just mean to be killed, it means to be gruesomely killed. It highlights the inhumane element of it, or the power differential between the one killing and the one being killed. And we, we still have a sense of this when we use this word, even metaphorically. For example, in sports, when we say that that team got slaughtered, we know what that means, and it's not pretty. But it is this slaughtered lamb that is deemed able to open the scroll and break its seals. It is this humiliated lamb to whom all of heaven sings, worthy is the lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. So what is this relationship then between the conquering lion and the slaughtered lamb? What do we do with these two images? What is the relationship, or we might ask, what is the relationship between conquering and being slaughtered? So again, I want to offer three ways of reading this passage that I think are unhelpful before we get 
to what I think John is saying. So the first way, the first reading that you could come to with this passage is what I call Santa Claus is coming to town and you better be on the nice list. And in this reading, Jesus is a lion or a lamb depending upon the context, depending upon your relationship with him. Are you a believer? Are you on team Jesus? Then he's a lamb who atones for your sins and offers you eternal life. Are you a sinner who rejects God and his promises? Well, then Jesus is a lion stalking you and ready to pounce. The foundation of this kind of interpretation is a kind of dualistic thinking. If you are good and righteous, God will give you victory. But if your life is a mess, God is ready to offer judgment. And God changes depending upon what I am like. Here, winning means the same thing as it does anywhere else. Winning is domination and power. But I'll only get to experience it or have it if my life is appropriately penitent and righteous. So what does it mean to conquer in this reading? It means having more power than the other guys so they can be subjugated beneath me. You know, we often talk about the messianic expectations of Israel before Jesus, as I did earlier. And it's often easy, I think, for us to separate ourselves from them, to say, wow, they were very clearly uncivilized and violent. I would never have had that kind of perspective. But I want to read here a selection from one of the texts that helps shape and give, give voice to this way of understanding what it meant to be Messiah. This comes from uh, a text called the Psalms of Solomon 17. See, O Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, at the time known only to you, O God, that he may reign over Israel your servant. Gird him with strength to shatter unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem of the nations that trample her down in destruction, to expel in wisdom and righteousness, sinners from the inheritance, to smash the sinner's pride like a potter's vessel, breaking in pieces with a rod of iron all their substance, to destroy the lawless nations by the word of his mouth, so that at his mere threat, nations flee before him, to condemn sinners by the thoughts of their own hearts. If you've ever thought that someone else ought to lose because they're on the wrong side or they have the wrong beliefs or because their life is a mess, you have embodied this kind of messianic theology, which is that some people just deserve to lose. So this is the first way of reading this passage. Jesus is a lion or a lamb, and it really just depends on what my status is like. But there's a second way of reading this passage, and that's the one I call, take your best shot because you only get one hit and then I'm wiping you out, reading. And this way of relating lion and lamb is temporal. Jesus is first a lamb, and then after he suffers, he becomes a lion. He first appears in weakness and meekness to die for the sins of the world, but then he comes back as Rambo Jesus to wipe out all his enemies. On the Christianity Today podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, Disgraced former pastor Mark Driscoll is recorded giving this commentary on this passage in Revelation 19. So not our text, but several chapters later in Revelation. Uh, if you've not read it, Revelation 19 is about the rider on the horse. And this is what Pastor Driscoll says. He gets a snapshot. The curtain is pulled back and behold, a white horse. I love this, he says. How many of you grew up watching westerns? The good guy always rides the white horse. It's biblical. It's not biblical. 
The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. You know Jesus will never take a beating again. That was a one-shot deal for salvation. That is not an ongoing job for Jesus to take a beating. His eyes are like a flame of fire. I just love this. This is ultimate fighter Christ. A hip-hop buddy of mine calls it Thug Jesus. Driscoll's fascination with the militaristic imagery of Revelation reveals his underlying assumption about what it means to be victorious. Being an ultimate fighter, making war, personifying a thug, is for Driscoll the embodiment of conquering. And just as clearly taking a beating is for him a loss. Driscoll is fine with Jesus being a lamb as long as it's merely a step in the process that ends with him being a fierce lion. Here, winning is understood as the second step in a two-step process. First, I must suffer loss, but I'm consoled by the fact that it's only temporary. Because once I have appropriately suffered and proven that I can lose, then I experience winning. Here, losing is the necessary and unpleasant but transitory mechanism that unlocks real winning. I lose, but only so that later I can win. I think it's easy to lampoon Driscoll here because he was subject to such public scrutiny last fall. But I, he's not really what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is us. The question is not about Driscoll. It's about us. Do we want a Jesus who suffers only so that he can become powerful? Do we want to embrace loss and humiliations only so that we will win and be exalted? Do we think that losing is just a strategy for winning. So that's the second way of reading this text. Jesus is first a lamb, and then he becomes a lion. He finally gets to where he needs to be. The final way of misreading this text, I think, is what I call, let's win but call it losing approach. And this is a Jesus who is really a lamb the whole time, but wears sheep's clothing. It looks like losing, but it's not. When I've been telling people about the kind of research I've been doing, um, on Revelation and about winning, the most common response I get is, ah, yes, the cross, it looked like losing, but really it was a victory. And when people say that, I think that what they mean is there is a disconnect between the way things look and the way things are. Jesus dying on a cross looks like a loss, but if we could just peer past the veneer and use our 3D spiritual glasses, we would see that it's a victory. The best example I can think of to illustrate this is the scene in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Aslan dies and comes back. And he explains to the children where he's been. So if you remember the story, Aslan the lion has agreed to take the place of Edmund, who has betrayed the group by aligning himself with the white witch. Aslan agrees to exchange places with the boy and be killed in his place. And he's killed on the stone table, but the next day, the girls come back and see him alive. And Aslan explains that the white witch didn't know the deep magic that if someone agrees to take the place of a traitor, they will be brought back to life. So it looked like to anyone else that Aslan's choice was losing, but if you could see the whole perspective, knowing the deep magic, having a 30,000-foot view, then you would see that it's really winning. It was winning the whole time. I think the problem with this kind of reading, though, is that it turns Jesus' death into a strategy, like a pawn sacrifice, or if we're going to use sports metaphors, like a sacrifice fly ball. And it's no mistake that both of these use these strategies utilize the language of sacrifice. Something seems like it's being lost, but ultimately only so you can have a much bigger win. 
So these three things, these three ways of, of interpreting lion and lamb. First, that it depends on your context. Jesus is a lion or a lamb, depending on who you are. Second, that Jesus is first a lamb and then he becomes a lion. Or third, that Jesus is a lion the whole time. He's just kind of dressed up looking like a lamb, kind of playing a role. I think that these are all wrong ways to understand this text. And I think that what John is doing in this passage is far more subversive and radical. I think he wants to refigure our notion of what it means to conquer. I think he wants to redefine what winning means. What John is saying with this imagery, I think, is that being slaughtered is conquering. Full stop. Period. And that is that when Jesus submits to being humiliated and beaten, that it is not a prelude to a later victory, or that if we could just roll back the spiritual curtains, we'd see Jesus conquering the host of hell. Jesus' suffering and death are victory, but not because they hide some kind of supernatural power of a conventional type. The cross is the place where the hatred of the world and the love of God collide. And what it shows us is not that God's love has to be supplemented or supplanted by superior force to match the world's hatred. It shows us that the love of God conquers the evil and brutality of the world, not as aggression, but as love. The death of Jesus reveals the nature of God. It shows us that God is a God who is defined by the notion of self-giving, of self-emptying, that this is what it means to be God. This is what God does. What it also reveals, I think, is that we don't much like this idea because it messes with our idea of what God should be like. What it shows us is that we have this idea of winning or victory that we understand, and we want to judge God by that idea rather than allowing this scary and unconventional understanding of God to redefine what it means to win. And sometimes what it shows us is that what we're really interested in is not God at all, but just winning. Donald Trump Jr. was was recently recorded as saying, we, meaning Republicans, have been playing t-ball for half a century while they, meaning the Democrats, are playing hardball and cheating, right? We've turned the other cheek. I understand the mentality, but it's gotten us nothing, okay? It's gotten us nothing while we've ceded ground in every major institution in our country. What he's saying here is that this ethic of turning the other cheek embedded in the Sermon on the Mount, this ethic of Jesus, doesn't work. It doesn't accomplish the kinds of things we desire. It gets us nothing. We want to imagine that God is a God of winning in the way that we've imagined it, but this is precisely what the cross reveals God is not. Rowan Williams, in his incredibly dense but amazing book, Christ, the Heart of Creation, says this. God alone is free to reveal to us that divinity is precisely not that elevated state of supernaturalized humanity that we so often imagine, the possession of a set of powers that magnify human capacity so that it can transcend the limits of time and the body. God is not humanity freed from frustration. God is not humanity, the way we imagine things, but freed from frustration, able to do whatever God wants. At the heart of divinity, Williams says, is the unresolved reality of the humiliated and executed Christ. This is what God does. 
This is God's enactment of what it is to be God in the terms of finite, speakable action in the world. And this is really nothing different than what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. God's weakness isn't just strength dressed up as weakness, in the same way that Jesus isn't just God dressed up like a human. And if we think that, we need to go back to Dr. Wilhite's TNT-1, and he will disavow you of that idea. God's weakness is weakness. The humiliation of the cross is humiliation, and losing is losing. But what the gospel reveals to us is that it is in weakness and in humiliation and in losing that God's self-giving love is present to transform those experiences and renew us. This is where God does God's best work. God's weakness is the way that God restores the world. So if we return to Revelation 5, we find that John tells us that the lamb has been and continues to be slaughtered. It is a perfect passive participle for all of you Greek nerds out there. Jesus doesn't get slaughtered and then quickly move on to a posture of domination. The lamb remains slaughtered in the midst of heaven. The one being worshipped, all the songs and hymns, is the slaughtered one. Because it is as the slaughtered one that Jesus is worthy to receive power and honor and glory, as the hymn tells us. And this is the same thing we see in the Easter narratives in the Gospels, where the angel tells the women at the tomb, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, the one who has been and continues to be crucified. Again, a perfect passive participle. Jesus doesn't stop being crucified in his resurrection. The nail scars remain. Jesus' resurrection doesn't abolish crucifixion, it transforms how we understand it. And likewise, the lambs being slaughtered doesn't prepare the way for true conquering. It is what it means to conquer. So what does it mean to win? And what does it mean to win for me? And this is what we all want to know, right? What does this have to do with my life? If I'm an athlete, does that mean that I just give up and I let people beat me because apparently just losing is what I need to do? If I'm a student, does it mean that I just don't study and I don't turn in my papers and I just get an F? No. The answer to both those questions is no. Elsewhere in Revelation, John tells us that the saints conquer by the word of their testimony and the blood of the Lamb. And we could have a whole lecture on what this means, but essentially what John is saying is that conquering is truth-telling and a willingness to tell the truth even when it costs you your life, which is what Jesus did. Conquering is to imitate the way of Jesus. John calls Jesus the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead at the opening of his book, linking these two ideas together. So what does this look like in sports or in politics or in business? And I think that to the degree that we continue to ask that question, it probably reveals to us to the degree that we have not absorbed the lesson of the slaughtered lamb. We are obsessed with winning, and we see it as an end, as a destination to reach. And what John tells us is that the slaughtered lamb is victory. Being a faithful witness unto death is an end in itself. Victory is a way of being and not a destination, not a place to get to. So I don't know what that looks like for you. 
if you're an athlete, you should train, and you should train hard, and you should put up as many points as you can. And if you're a student, you need to study hard and take your papers seriously. But in the midst of doing that, being committed to being a faithful witness, no matter what it costs you. And aware that your failure and your loss is not a sign of divine displeasure, but the place of God's presence. So I just want to say one more thing before we close. And that's that I think that we can leave here with this message feeling like, well, great, I have one more thing to do. I got to read my Bible and I got to pray and I got to go to chapel and now I have to win the right way. It's just one more thing on my box of things to check off. This is not another thing in your checklist. All of this, as all Christian living, is simply learning to see the world rightly. And seeing the world rightly means that I know I am always deeply and completely loved by God at all times, no matter what. Which frees me then to tell the truth about the world and myself and to not grab but to give. I want to read one more passage from Revelation 5, and this is near the end. They sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. You have already been made right with God already been secured, already affirmed by what Jesus has done for you. You are priests, you are saints, you are ransomed. And that means that we are free from needing to win. And that is the victory of the Lamb. Let's pray. Help us, O Lord, to see you rightly, and in doing so, to see ourselves rightly. Free us from our obsession with winning and our compulsion to come out on top in every scenario. Help us to live faithful lives and to witness to your self-giving love that conquers the world. Amen.